Hey everybody, Craig here. Welcome to episode 34 of Think Relevance, the podcast with our special guest today, Mike Nygaard. Had a really fun conversation with him. Before we get on to that, just want to mention a few things. I uh, want to mention again that uh, Closure Conj registration is open. You can go to closure-conj.org to get ticket information. Uh, early bird registration is closed. It's sold out in like a day. So probably not a terrible idea to go get your tickets if you're planning to go. Should be a lot of fun. That's in Alexandria in November, Alexandria, Virginia. So hope to see you there. Uh, we're also going to be locating the Scheme and Functional Programming Conference there uh, in the same location as the CONJ. It'll be on Wednesday, November 14th um, from 9 to 5 p.m. And you can go to www.schemeworkshop.org for more information. I want to mention again, there is a discount code for Lambda Jam Chicago available to listeners of the Relevance Podcast. Uh, if you go to regonline.com, regonline.com slash lambdajam2013 and use the discount code RELPOD, R-E-L-P-O-D, you'll get $50 off your tickets. Uh, so that's all happening. Lots of good conference stuff. Um, I think that's all i got to say for right now. So uh, if you missed any of those links, by the way, head over to the show notes on the, the blog, thinkrelevance.com slash blog, and you'll, you'll find all that info there. But uh, I think that'll do it for now bring you on to the episode. Thanks for listening. Let's see. Today is Friday, June 7th in the year 2013. This is Think Relevance, the podcast, and I am pl- very pleased to welcome uh, Mike Nygaard to the show. Welcome. Thanks, Craig. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, yeah, it's, it's super awesome. Actually, you, uh, I know I say this a lot, but it really is true that, that I've, I've wanted to have you on the show for a long time. There's just a ton of interesting people at Relevance, and uh, you're certainly one of them. Um, yeah, but I think there's a, a number of things that have happened kind of uh, recently that have made it even more compelling to have you on the show. But we'll get to those in a minute. Uh, before we jump into that, I do want to ask you for the, uh, the the song that we're playing as the intro here. Yes, so right now we are listening to Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. Okay, cool. Awesome. I love it. It's, uh, it's more typical for people to pick uh, rock songs, but uh, that is, is very cool. Um, I, I sometimes say all my favorite music comes from the 80s, the 1980s, the... 1780s and the 1880s <laughs> well uh two out of three is not bad um so uh i'm kidding of course uh, all right well so let's let's jump into um the th- the most recent thing actually no let's not do that let's give everybody uh a chance to meet you since they although they have heard your name on several of the podcast episodes maybe you could introduce yourself to our listeners since they have not yet uh, uh personally encountered you on the show Sure, happy to. Uh, so currently my role is CTO at Relevance, uh, and my career you'd either describe as uh, well-rounded or checkered, depending on how <laughs> uh, charitable you're being. Uh, I've done all kinds of software development, um, 
military, commercial, intelligence, uh, medical, retail, you name it, um, and have been doing it for a span I don't really want to admit. I've also done a lot of software architecture, and in about 2002, made a sideways step into the world of operations, and I did outsourced operations for major commercial websites. Uh, so I was the guy getting the escalation calls at two in the morning when the site broke. Uh, that was a really interesting experience, and it, it taught me a lot about how well our software behaved once it met the real world, uh, which, you know, the answer was not not very well at all. Mm. Uh, so I took that experience and, and tried to kind of come back into the software world and bring that, uh, that knowledge to developers uh, through a book that uh, got released in 2007 called Release It!, which is all about you know, building software to survive the real world instead of just passing QA. Uh, and I'm happy to say that that's been a, a pretty well-received book. Uh, so, yeah, I guess that kind of brings us up to date. I've been doing a lot of uh, development and consulting around DevOps and software architecture since then. So you're, and I have read your book and I really enjoyed it. I mean, I've... Oh, I, thanks. Yeah, I, I mean, I had a s somewhat similar background in, you know, uh, I, I would often work closely with ops, um, <laughs> which I think is super educational, and I highly recommend that any de any developer should should become friendly with the ops team to the maximum extent possible. It's always a good thing when when we help each other out like that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, you know, it's just like actually shipping software changes people. Actually living with it in production changes people, mm -hmm. and you can almost tell by talking to them who's done it and who hasn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. The glassy-eyed stare, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so that's that's cool. So, but uh, and you mentioned that you're the the CTO at Relevance. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how you how you came on board. You've been here for it must be very close to two years now. Is that right? You know what? It is two years as of this month. I awesome. think I just passed my two-year anniversary, or it's coming up uh, in a week or so. Well, congratulations. Uh, thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, I I had known. Uh, uh, Justin and Stu for a few years before joining Relevance. I had formed a, a pretty good impression. And actually, um, somewhat ironically, I had been a customer of Relevance in a previous job, then uh, then left and went off and did independent consulting for a while uh, and got called by uh, Maness to see if you know the time was right. And so we started talking and the, the time seemed right to come on board. So I think I was number... 31 or 32 uh, into the company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and your your role for a while there was uh, was architect, and it, I mean yes. that's kind of a loose role at at relevance as as it should be, given that. The, yeah, right. I, I think you know when we say architect, we kind of just mean someone with a lot of scars. <laughs> right. it, you you have successfully dodged that title, but I would I would happily say that you fit the role as well. It has taken some work on my part, but uh, that's kind of a history of mine where. Uh, early in my career, um, I, and this was pretty common in the nineties that it's still common. I think it's a little less common now. Uh, the term architect really started, had this big resurgence, uh, that's not resurgence, but a big kind of, it, it became a really a thing it felt like to me. And the thing that oh, it yeah. became was not good. No, you know, Neil Ford describes architect as being post-technical, uh, <laughs> which isn't meant as a compliment. Right. Um, I, I, I really view it, I don't like it as a title. I, I really view it as a skill set that you can employ when you're doing work. 
you know some people say architect is like you know when in D and D when your character leveled up there were different names for the different levels you know it, cleric was like an acolyte and initiate and so on so like a level 12 developer becomes an architect or something mm-hmm. uh, i don't really like that perspective yeah uh, I, I view it as a, a way of thinking about problems and about systems and i i actually want to spread that skill set far and wide i want a lot of people to have architecture skills even if they don't have the title yeah so i've actually been trying to dissolve the title here at relevance yeah, I feel like it's really uh, we don't really use it much anymore. Uh, no, it's, it's it, which is good anyway. So, so yeah, so you, you you kind of had that title for a while, and and certainly you've got the the skills. I mean, I've really enjoyed. I I really love being able to talk to people uh, like you and like Tim Ewald about you know the aspects of solving software problems that involve systems thinking because I know that you guys um, are good at that stuff, and so uh, that's that's always super helpful to me. Yeah, cool. Thanks. Um, so, so uh, yeah, so so there there's been a lot of excitement recently around uh, blog posts that you wrote. Um, I always really enjoy all of your blog posts, um, but this most recent one uh, kind of got some attention because you um, directly solicited feedback, and people seem to really respond to that. So the one I'm talking about is three book ideas, uh, and I, and I wonder if you could, uh, for any people who hasn't seen it, maybe recap that and then expand on that a little bit? Sure. So the, the reason I wrote it was actually just to solve a problem that I was having. Um, and the problem was I have a lot of ideas and sometimes I don't know how to proceed on one or I, I start working on one and ideas from the others intrude. And I, I'm bad at then, you know, filtering other things out. And so I wanted to work on another book for a while and I just kept getting stuck or, or kind of oscillating among different ideas. So I thought, yeah, let me practice what we preach and, and get feedback early and often. Um, I, I was talking with uh, uh, Gene Kim, who recently wrote The Phoenix Project, a fantastic book. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. Um, and he was advising me to uh, actually just test these ideas out you know, put out something like a mailing list or a sign-up sheet and see which one attracts the most sign-ups. So I thought I'd do this as a blog post instead. And I, I pitched three ideas. I, I think they're relatively distinct ideas. Uh, one of them is, you know, how to build a modern web company. So I do a, consulting with a lot of different outfits that want to act like an Etsy or a Facebook but they really don't know how. And so they try different partial methodologies, agile development, lean, DevOps, uh, you name it, but they don't work because they're only trying a piece of the whole puzzle. And they actually need to change other factors at the same time. So this would be a book about how to change all of those things together and, and really build for speed. So that was one. The second one, uh, I, I playfully named the Hickey Halloway paradigm, expecting to get you know a little bit of groaning from Rich or Stu about it. I haven't heard any groaning yet, so I don't think they've actually read my post. Well, Stu is so shy. Yes, right. It's hard to get him to speak up on anything, isn't yeah. it? Um, so uh, this is basically saying there is a style of development and of software design that we've been evolving 
uh, kind of at relevance uh, along with Rich. And I, I would say Rich is the uh, initiator and the promoter of many of these ideas, and then we're sort of developing the theme and elaborating on them. But I feel like we've gone on this this journey over several years to a really different way of building software. And no one's actually written down the, the rules. Rich has done a lot of dynamite talks at conferences, but I think there's room for a book about this. So that was number two. And then the third one was sort of like the metaphysics of data. <laughs> that, uh, you know, we, we think of relational data and people sort of instinctively go straight to entity relationship diagrams. But that's actually um, uh, only one way of looking at data, and it, it turns out to be a rather limited way. And so if you if you back up and you go to the mathematical vision of data and the nature of relations over sets and this kind of thing, you get a really different perspective on it. And we can do some things with that. So this would be, uh, I guess, bridging between the academic nature of you know, database research papers and so on, and the practical nature of, you know, how does a programmer sitting at their desk deal with queries over hierarchies of organizational structures? You know, that sort of recursive, reflexive query that's always such a bear to do. Right. Wow. Yeah. So my input is the same as, well, you got a lot of feedback on the blog, which is really cool to see. I did. Yeah, um, more comments than I think we've gotten on any other blog post. It's still up there. It's still you know relatively current, so people listening to the podcast can go comment as well. Yep. It's not too late. Yep. Thinkrelevance.com slash blog. We're right there. Um, yeah, and, and, and there's so much there that I want to drill uh, drill down on. I think I might start with the, the last one first and actually ask you um, about something that's related to that. So... <laughs> You and I get along very well, despite the fact that you attended Caltech and I attended MIT. Uh, we don't yeah, I know. That... We're, not, we're not supposed to talk, are I we? I know. We're really not. But, uh, but we do anyway, and, you know, in defiance of tradition. Um, but, but one of the th – so I, I don't think I've ever asked you what – so what was your, your major area of study at Caltech? So when I went in, I was in aerospace engineering. That was my, my declaration to begin with uh, because I, I wanted to be – uh, in the space shuttle program. That was my ambition. What I discovered partway through was um, that fluid dynamics is a real pain in the ass, <laughs> and uh, I didn't enjoy it at all. And, of course, you can't be an aerospace engineer without doing fluid dynamics because fluids are everything in, in aerospace. Mm. So I kind of looked around, and I went, uh-oh, uh, what do I do now? And I uh, said... I've actually taken more computer courses than I have anything else, programming and uh, uh, design and engineering of, of computers. And so I said, hmm, the evidence tells me that's probably what I enjoy, so let me go do that. Uh, so I switched, and my uh, the actual major I came out with was engineering and applied science, which is what covers both computer engineering and computer science at Caltech. Okay. So the reason I asked that um, is that you have on several occasions, both in uh, your public writings and speaking, and also in conversations that I've had with you, you have um, drawn heavily on um, physical metaphors to software. And, and I mean like hard physical metaphors, like talking about <laughs> entropy yes. and, you know, I mean, whatever. And, and so I was kind of curious about your, your background and um, 
you know, we, we've, you and I have actually sat down and have had conversations that have driven these analogies to ridiculous extremes, right? <laughs> yes, like taking them true. all the way into absurdity. But I wonder, um, so, so like I say, that, that third so where, book. So where does that come from? Well, where does it come from and, and how has it been working out for you and, and how does it kind of relate to that third book idea? Well, so uh, people sometimes uh, laugh a little bit because I will make an analogy to quantum mechanics or general relativity or, or uh, evolutionary biology. And so I'm trying to you know, explain one thing they don't understand by relating it to another thing they don't understand, <laughs> which, which isn't always that productive. Um, but the way that it relates to the third book is actually kind of challenging, and it's, it's a problem that I haven't resolved for myself. Uh, so we, we talk about abstraction. Uh, let, let's take abstraction just for a moment and, and talk about that. You know, we build computers out of electronic components. You know, a transistor is fundamentally analog. It, it only acts like a digital component because we slam it all the way to the saturated state or all the way to the unsaturated state. So a transistor is already letting us abstract over the movement of electrons and charges. And there's a uh, deeper sense in which electrons themselves could be viewed as abstractions. But uh, let, let's stay out of the quantum realm for the moment. All right. Hour two. Right. So then we, we build up uh, transistors into processors, and we call them bits and memory, uh, which are abstractions over you know, millions upon millions of tiny switches. We create operating systems and languages and language constructs that are layers upon layers upon layers of abstraction. And it's abstraction in the sense of bringing together some concerns uh, uh, that are similar to each other you know, how do I manipulate memory? How do I transform values? Uh, and discarding other concerns that we don't want to pay attention to at that point, like moving charges around in transistors. And you look at all of that stack of abstraction and you say, where in that is the potential for lambda? Because you see, I can build all of computing up out of these physical components but then lambda seems to come from a different realm. You, you, sorry, you need to stop and explain what you mean by lambda. Oh, sorry. Um, lambda meaning I construct a function that can be applied to a value. So, you know, lambda x dot x is the application of x to a value. Uh, and all the way back to the 1930s, I guess, uh, we had this notion of building up all of mathematics with the lambda calculus. Mm -hmm. So you start with this tiny little thing. Lambda is like the electron of uh, mathematics, and you can build it into set theory and uh, uh, fractal geometry and all the com uh, complex systems that we deal with today. So we've got these two sort of parallel competing stacks of abstractions. And it turns out, you can represent either one in the other. Mm. So it almost feels like they come from different realms somehow. And I am now getting completely metaphysical and say, uh, you know, I, I can't look anywhere in the physical universe and see where the potential for Lambda comes from. Sorry, that's, that what you hear is the sound of smoke coming out of my ears. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, no, it's, it's good. Been on it's my great. mind a lot lately, and I, I haven't had a, an outlet to share it with anyone. No, no, please. Uh, so, um, 
So you were talking about this in the context of the third book. The, oh, uh, yes, I totally derailed myself. Uh, so uh, that's an example of this sort of argument that's always existed in mathematics about whether mathematics is created or discovered. You know, the, the Platonists thought that mathematics existed in a, a separate, more ideal realm. Uh, it's a contemporary debate. Uh, Lee Smolin, the, the physicist, picks it up in a book he's got out now called uh, Time Reborn, where he strongly asserts that mathematics is not a separate realm, that it's completely embedded in time and the, the real universe. So I, I can't really resolve this debate. But what I can say is that that mathematicians' view, the, the Platonic view of things simply existing, unchangeable, uh, immutable, eternal, that has some similarities to the way that we are doing our programming these days. You know, uh, we talk about a set of objects. And the old style of thinking about sets was uh, a place-oriented view. You know, a set is like a pointer to a linked list or it's uh, an array and I'm going to change the array and add more stuff to the set. Mm -hmm. The mathematician's view of the set is the set simply exists and when you do a function on it, you're actually now referring to a new set. The new set has always existed. You just didn't name it until now. Mm. right? Or you weren't uh, touching it in some way. You weren't using it until now. And so this notion of moving from one set to another set to another set is a lot more in line with the way we do programming in Clojure mm -hmm. and the way we do it with Datomic. You know, I can say that um, uh, when we're building a system with Datomic, we're actually using a sequence of databases that each are immutable at their point in time. Mm -hmm. right? And when we execute a transaction, we're moving from one, uh, one database to another database. We're not changing the database. The old one still exists and it's still reachable. We're just moving to a new one. Yeah, I'm reminded of the, um, of the you know, people I think by now are, are more familiar with REST and there's this split in REST. It's not a perfect analogy, but the, you know, resource and representation, right? Mm -hmm. The one is much more abstract and the other is much more concrete, although those are, of course, illusions in the sense that you were talking about, you know, these, we have these towers of abstractions, but, but there's certainly a sense and uh, a, a feeling that one of those things is more Mm, you know, more like Lambda, and one of those things is more like um, electrons. Yeah, I definitely think so. And we have similar questions with REST that we do uh, that I think Clojure has solved for us in the programming world about identity versus state. You know, I have a URI. Is that truly the identity, or is it a pointer to a state at a point in time? Um, or can I use them for both? And there's a canonical identity um, and old states are still accessible. Yeah, that remains a hard problem in the design of web-based systems. Yes. Hmm. Okay, all right, cool. So uh, let's see, did we finish unwinding the concept stack? No, I don't think so. I think so we are still talking about this, you know, this, this uh, you're up against this sort of debate that you have and uh, how to apply that to the third book remains an open question. Right, so you're, you're going to pin me down and make me try and resolve it somehow. Um, Maybe. Actually, part of writing the book would be me trying to work through my own internal uh, debate and conflict about this. And maybe it's uh, irresolvable. Uh, but 
I, I've come to think about a lot of things in data as uh, projections of a of multi-dimensional spaces down to lower dimensions. So I could take uh, an entire relational database and say, you know, this is actually where the term relation in relational came from. Uh, what we've really got is a rule that defines a subset of all the possible intersections of all the columns. So if you took all the columns in a relational database and you said, I'm going to get the Cartesian product of every value that could exist in every column. It's vast, right? Mm -hmm. If you've got 100 columns, then you've got 100 dimensions. And if each one can have a million values, then you've got uh, a, a volume of a million to the 100th power. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's immense. We can't represent the whole thing. and We, we can't create logic about uh, how to represent the subset of that that exists. And so we, we map it down to a physical implementation where we say uh, the subset of those things that exists uh, or that we, we consider to exist at this moment in time, uh, we're actually just going to enumerate them. And instead of enumerating them in this full 100-dimensional space, we're going to say for this uh, subset of them, uh, uh, say the, the name, address, city, and state of your customers, for this uh, set of dimensions out of this vast hundred-dimensional hypercube, none of the other dimensions matter. So if name is Michael Nygaard and state is Minnesota, then uh, I have sort of don't cares or wild cards in all the other dimensions. Mm -hmm. So I project that down and I call that a table. Uh, or actually, I call it a row in a table. The subset of all the allowed name-state combinations would be a two-column table. That's a relation. It's a subset of the Cartesian product of all the possible values. And so in a way, I can derive the relational model from this uh, multidimensional uh, hypercube model. And it turns out, if I project it in other ways and I make other rules about how to map it down to storage structures, I can come up with something that looks like a tuple store or something that looks like a graph database. Uh, something that looks like a hierarchical database or even an object database. Mm -hmm. So it sort of feels like that that mental model of the you know the full Cartesian product and just taking different angles at looking at it, it feels more uh, fundamental somehow than any of these other models. Yeah, you can even model the time aspect by saying that uh, you know the value of the database at one point in time is a, is one subset. And Absolutely. The, and the next value is a different subset, and there's a function that moves you between those. Absolutely. So this would physicists would recognize this as a phase space or a configuration space and transforming the system through the, the phase space. Um, this is actually why I say datomic is more relational than Oracle, mm -hmm. because a value of a datomic database is a relation over the space of all possible values for that schema. And you go from one relation to another relation. Mm -hmm. And hopefully at this point, um, our listeners who are listening to this while driving are not doing what I've been doing for the last 10 minutes while I've been listening to and closing their eyes and thinking really hard. <laughs> yeah, I hope not. I usually listen to this while I'm driving as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have missed my turn on a couple of occasions. I am, I am super happy to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so I sorry, I didn't mean to derail you because it's really That's interesting. That's all right. So we go should, ahead. Uh, that was kind of it. That was okay. kind of the full unfolding. And well, 
I haven't worked through what the implications are. That would be the process of writing the book, and I, I haven't done that. Yeah, that's cool, actually, because that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you, is I know that when I write something, um, it's often a, a learning experience for me. And so uh, it sounds like you have some pretty concrete goals for what you would want to learn from writing um, uh, these books. And I think we've touched at least on one of the things that you'd like to get out of writing uh, the, the, the one about data, the nature of data. Um, so the, the Hickey-Halloway paradigm, let's kind of roll back to number two. Uh, what, you know, is there something in there that you would hope to uh, educate yourself on in the process of kind of writing that down? Oh, definitely. Um, and that that's why I keep coming back to that one and why I couldn't get, you know, resolution on any of the three of these. I should say, so far, the, the Hickey-Halloway paradigm is the clear favorite among the blog commenters, um, which could be an effect of selection bias because, you know, our our audience is pretty familiar with Rich and Stu and, you know, we kind of have a easy channel to speak to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it might not represent the population at large, but there are a lot of people interested in this style of design. Yeah, I think, I, I don't know. I mean, again, this could also be selection bias, but that one is pretty interesting to me too, um, partly because the how to build a web company. I already work for one, <laughs> so I can right. see it. Yes. The Hickey-Halloway paradigm and the nature of data, which would be the two that would be my most interested in, are the ones that I'm sort of feel like I'm still moving through that process. I am as well. Uh, and in fact, this is kind of the book that I wanted to have at my disposal when I started doing Clojure, uh, I guess about five years ago now, that I, I read all the intro books that were pretty good about how to make a function, but then how do you compose those functions into a meaningful system? The right. first sort of non-toy application I tried to build in Clojure, I absolutely tied myself in knots with, you know, maps of atoms to refs to other maps and agents with watchers and all of this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was all—it was just all gooped up. Uh, it didn't work very well, and I, I eventually threw it away. Uh, then I look at uh, something like Datomic, and it's kind of amazing to know that there's one atom in Datomic. Mm-hmm. You know, so Clojure's got these great concurrency constructs, atoms and refs and agents and so on, uh, and you turn out to use them very sparingly. Yeah, you know, almost everything you do is uh, pure functions transforming values into other values. So. You know, like, like, what are the patterns for building systems like that? You go read the POSA books or the Gang of Four, and they're they're so clearly OO focused in mm-hmm. nature that uh, you you just you can't apply it. You know, uh, POSA's got a chapter on pipeline architecture. Uh, sorry, POSA, you have to. Oh, sorry, uh, pattern oriented software architecture. Right. Uh, it's a series of great books about software architecture in an OO world. And some of them apply to, to system architecture as well. Um, but, you know, something like the pipeline pattern, uh, there's there's no need to call it a pattern in a functional language, right? It's just comp. Right. It's, you just compose functions and you get a thing that looks like a pipeline. Uh, layers. You know, the the <laughs> Composing a system into layers is actually an architectural pattern. Uh, it's probably the most common one applied anywhere. And... In the OO world, I would argue it doesn't always work as well as it claims. So, uh, take a one of the Rails systems that we've built from time immemorial, or at least 
the the dawn of relevance. Uh, you want to add a field to a form, and you go and you make a change in the view, and you make a change in the model. Right. Sometimes you make a change in the controller to find by that uh, thing. Uh, you make a change in the schema by writing a migration. And so I wanted to add one thing, but I'm touching five places. I'm not sure the layers really got us the kind of isolation we were looking for. Um, you get isolation by really separating concerns in orthogonal ways. And I feel like there are some lessons that we can gain from the design of Clojure, uh, from the implementation of Datomic and of Clojure Script that are generally interesting. Um, an example, it, it, it is better to pass around a data structure of values than to pass around uh, functions and closures. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean we don't do it. It just means if you're trying to decouple things, you know, you, you pass around functions and closures within a certain bounded context. And when you're crossing that context, you create isolation by passing just values, uh, uh, simple values. That's a little bit of a deviation from what we think of as functional style, right? Functional style says functions are first order. You you pass them around like crazy. Right. Well, yes, you do. Uh, but if you do that indiscriminately, it becomes harder to structure a larger system. Yeah, we've, we've said before, um, one of the tenets that I think you could say is part of the Hickey-Halloway way, and, and this, I... I, I I know that you're not trying to say that uh, Rich and Stu, you know, invented these things, but they have kind of led us towards using them uh, together, I think is, is more the idea there. Yeah, by the way, I, I put that name on there in the hopes of prodding one of them to name it better. <laughs> Maybe the joy of immutability or something like that. <laughs> um, yeah, but I think, so one of the things that we've said is, you know, uh, uh, very similar to uh, uh, reuse by build is uh, data function macro, right? In order of preference. In yes. order of preference, yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, go on, please. <laughs> oh, well, I, I mean, I haven't really enumerated or elaborated all of those, but you mentioned immutability, and that is that is really huge. Mm -hmm. uh, not just, you know, we, we talk about immutability and multi-core and so on and, and reasoning about the system. Um, I, I'll say I, I'm a little tired of hearing the phrase reasoning about the system because what that often amounts to is staring at the code and mentally simulating what it does. Mm. I think this is why it's, uh, it's hard for OO people to come into the functional realm because when you're reading object code, yeah, you have to follow the classes around, but by and large, the code just kind of does what it says. Um, whereas with the functional code, I, I still find myself having to mentally simulate things. Mm. But immutability, it, it, it's clearly a help at the micro scale. But at the macro scale, it can deliver really powerful architectural benefits. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I know I keep going back and talking about Datomic because uh, I've, I've had a little bit of an interior view on it. And uh, there's some incredibly cool stuff in there. Yep. For instance, every piece of storage that's written by Datomic is immutable. So once you use a block of storage, uh, you can't change it. You can create a new one and replace uh, references to the old one with references to the new one by creating new storage segments of those parts. Uh, so 
it seems like a lot of work treating your storage immutably, but it delivers benefits like perfect cacheability mm-hmm. and the ability to read and execute queries uh, even when the transactor is offline. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Tim and I, uh, Tim Ewald and I have joked about uh, Datomic being uh, so cacheable that you could use a content delivery network to deliver your storage segments and you could actually <laughs> have, you know, a database delivery network like that. Well, you could, and I mean, um, you totally could. We, we've, I've built, I have built a system where the most recent piece of information we need is from uh, the 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 most recent midnight, and so for large chunks of the day, if the database was offline for like twenty three hours, <laughs> mm-hmm. it wouldn't matter. Right, because those storage segments are all you need, and you know they're not going to change, so you don't have to worry about consistency. Mm-hmm. Rather, it's a different flavor of consistency. You're you're consistent at a point in time, right? Even though you might not be perceiving the latest moment of time, right? Which you never are, actually. Even in a real database system, there is no such thing as now. Like you're never you can yeah, that's right. you, you can never say this is what it, this is the state of the system now. It doesn't mean anything. There is yeah, any- right? Because it because it takes time for the result set to cross the wire. Uh, to to your client, no matter what. Right. Yeah. This is where those physics analogies start to creep in, because uh, mm-hmm. you know what we're perceiving right now isn't really now; it's infinitesimally uh, a little time ago. Uh, and the further out we look, the further ago we're looking. Yeah, I mean, you and I are talking on Skype right now, and uh, you know, you're in Minnesota, and I'm in Virginia, and do the math, <laughs> right? Like that's right. And, and even beyond that, like this is a podcast that we are going to record and put on the internet and people are going to listen to later and the bits are going to stream to them from, as it turns out, somewhere in Virginia since we use S3 to wherever they are in the world. So there's all sorts of skew going on. Yeah, it reminds me of that scene in Spaceballs where they start watching the uh, VHS tape of Spaceballs, the movie, <laughs> and they catch up to now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that was a bit of an excursion, but... Um, yeah, also an incredibly dated reference. Oh, I don't. I knew exactly what you meant, sir. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, it's that probably by keep sticking to the old ones, you're more likely to not go over my head. Actually. Um, yeah, I, I meant I meant VHS tape. Well, that too, I suppose. <laughs> um, all right. Well, getting back maybe on track here. Uh, okay. So, oh man, like I say, you know, uh, good thing I'm not driving. Um, so, so I guess let's talk about the the, the first book. The the you know the uh, how to build a web? How did you how did you put that? How did you phrase that one in the post? I like the blueprint for a web company. I think. Yeah. So I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit. I mean, you you talked about the fact that um, there's a little bit of cargo culting going on. You know, like oh well, if we do Scrum, then we're good. Or if we're in the cloud, then we're good. And I wonder if you could give us a taste of why it is important to um, consider those things together rather than separately. Yeah. Sure. I mean, I I can best do it by example. So. You know, a lot of my uh, day-to-day work is out consulting with our our clients, um, many of whom are, call them first or second generation web companies that now have tons of legacy code. You know, like the million and a half line Java legacy code base is a very real thing at this point. And they kind of have legacy organizational structures in a way too. Um, so traditional IT versus development division, uh, 
product management sitting off to the side as part of marketing. Um, infrequent use of their own analytics data uh, rather than continuous adjustment. And so I see them make these efforts like saying, well, we've built a private cloud. Great. That's fantastic. How has it affected your cycle time for delivering features into production? Well, they don't actually measure it because they're still kind of developing software the old way. Or they have a private cloud, but to get a virtual machine, you submit a request to IT, and IT has a human in the loop that reviews it and processes it and builds you a VM and issues you a VM, you know, weeks or, or months later. And so it's kind of like, you know, they've gone 80% of the way to really having a private cloud, but they didn't take the final steps of inverting control. And so a lot of this blueprint idea is like, uh, we need to invert control in a lot of places. IT should view themselves as building a platform to enable dev. Uh, dev should view themselves as building the tools to enable their uh, their marketers and so on. Um, and if you don't do that, then you know people will just go outside the company. Like the transaction costs of going out and and getting. Uh, cloud resources or software as a service are very low. And I see this happening all over the place. Uh, I guarantee every company has some amount of rogue uh, software and rogue development going on out in the uh, Amazon cloud. You know, it, it just happens because, because devs can do it. And it's not just devs. Um, marketing goes out and makes deals with third-party optimization companies. And they get a little chunk of JavaScript that they put into their content management system. And it shows up on a page and rewrites the whole page and goes and pulls resources from somewhere else. And then, of course, IT gets called with a performance problem on the page. And they're looking at it and they don't even know where this stuff is coming from because it's coming through third-party services. Mm -hmm. uh, so you kind of have to take this enablement view and say, you know, I'm a service provider. Uh, I need to give you as much control as possible. And if there's a safety concern, I need to bake safety into the mechanisms, not apply human processes, because humans slow things down. So you, you do that kind of inversion in a lot of different places, and um, you kind of end up discovering that that's, that's what... Uh, lean software development gives you and, and that's what a focus on cycle time gives you and that's what a product management uh, structure gives you or sorry a, a product uh, uh, central I'm trying to think how to describe this you know instead of saying I'm organized functionally I put all the network people in one place all the database people in one place all the devs in one place and so on I'm organized cross-functionally around products you know so here is everyone who deals with uh, our catalog, right? Marketing, merchandising, development, project managers, uh, operations, database, all of them to get working together consistently on the catalog. Hmm. That's the kind of organization I'm talking about. So I'm curious now, your relevance as CTO, have you started to do this for us? I'd be curious to see what you think. I have. <laughs> We're we have some changes on the horizon um, that, that we can't really disclose yet. Um, but yes, I have. Okay. Um, and so without giving away anything that we can't talk about just yet, and I'm sure we will, well, I know, I know I'd love to have you back when we can and to, to talk about it more, but um, can you give us a taste of 
what it has been like to do that, what the, what the most effective or interesting strategies have been in a company like Relevance. Because, I mean, some of the things you're talking about, like the companies that come to my mind are much larger than us. Yeah, I mean, I, that is kind of who I've been uh, dealing with and, and who I'm aiming at with this uh, description. Because in a, in a company like Relevance, we all kind of get together and say, you know, here's a set of ideas uh, let's kick them around. And if we decide it's the right way to go, like, you know, three weeks later, that's how we're operating. Um, it's, it's pretty easy to make structural changes here. Uh, less easy to make cultural changes. I think that's true for any company of more than one person. Mm. Um, and maybe even not then. Maybe even then. Uh, but with the larger companies, as soon as you talk about changing organization, uh, you bring whole dimensions of politics into it uh, because, of course, some some people are going to be displaced from their seats of power. Uh, some people are going to have budget granted or taken away and people but granted or taken away. Um, so it's, it's a very hard thing to do uh, in a larger organization. What, what have what you it, been – go ahead. What it takes in order to do it is, is a concerted uh, effort that is both grassroots – and executive supported. Mm. So, you know, in most of these companies, there are people everywhere dying for change. Uh, they're sometimes the malcontents. You know, you need to go find the ones that are constantly arguing against the status quo. Um, get them on board. Uh, find the ones who are already sneakily doing newer ways or working in newer ways. If you can get them to admit it, uh, then you can can hold them up as the champions of the new way of working. And at the same time, you have to have the executive support that says, yes, this is going to be disruptive. Uh, there will be painful change. We're going to get through the painful change and come out on the other side as a better, stronger company. And I want all of you to come with, uh, but uh, you know, it's your choice. Uh, this is the way we're going to work, and, and you can... Join us on this journey uh, or not, right? Um, so that combination of grassroots and executive support is uh, really powerful. Hmm. Uh, I mean, uh, I, you know, I know your background. Uh, we've talked before about the things you've worked on. I know you've been through <laughs> that. Um, uh, so I, I know if, if you do wind up landing on the first book as the one you write, and you know, I, I and many other people have our fingers crossed that more than one of these will eventually uh, flow from your pen. Um, <laughs> um, it would be really interesting to me, at least, to read about that aspect of the, the transformation process you're, you're describing. I have been through a couple of them, uh, you know, some successful, some not successful. And, and like always, I, I try and discern the patterns to see why, why did this one work and this one didn't work. Yeah. Well... Well, that's that's all super awesome, and uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, what direction you decide to go. Um, uh, and I'm sure we'll have to. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about whatever book does get written uh, or books um, at some point in the future. But uh, I, I want to, you know, uh, I want to make sure that we talk about um, a couple of the things, maybe um, not least of which is, you know, so yes, you are a CTO. Yes, you are often tasked with design stuff, but you know, you're a hacker too, and uh, you've been hacking on various things that I've heard about of a Friday. So I'm wondering, are you kind of coding anything up right now that uh, is interesting or that you'd like to talk about? 
Um, I guess one thing I could talk about. Uh, it's occupying most of my uh, spare cycles these days. Um, uh, and it relates to Pedestal. So uh, I'm, I'm kind of a server-side guy, and I haven't really gotten into the Pedestal client-side too much. And I, I need to close that gap sometime soon. But on the server-side, uh, I, I started looking at the architectures we were laying down for some of our clients and realizing that they're all sort of service-oriented, they're all sort of resource-oriented, and there's just a ton of code you end up writing over and over again to slosh data into some wire representation and then out of that and into a database and back. And I thought, I'm working in a tool that, that lets me do a lot of things as data that then turns into code or that manipulates code. Why am I rewriting this same data sloshing code over and over? So I started working on something I call pedestal resource, where I can just uh, create a, a data structure that describes the schema that I want, uh, not not precisely in datomic schema language, because I want to map to datomic and solar uh, at some point. Mm -hmm. But you you fire up a service with this you know 15 line declaration of what your uh, resource looks like, and you get uh, an HTTP endpoint that speaks Eden with all the rest verbs plus search. Um, and you get an HTML interface for administering the data. That's a little mm -hmm. ugly right now, but that's where I need to get that pedestal client-side stuff going. Uh, and it automatically creates a, a datomic schema for you. Uh, and you can uh, version it. So one of the attributes on every field is since. Uh, so if you add new attributes, you you know, say that they're since the latest version, and it will uh, add those to the datomic schema. Ah, nice. So I built it all uh, using Pedestal, and I was actually able to use Pedestal's interceptor mechanism to build the plumbing as well. So the whole thing is built as uh, interceptor chains that get invoked on these HTML end or uh, HTTP endpoints. Uh, and uh, it lets me do things like inject time awareness as a, a kind of decorator to a resource. Mm -hmm. So I declare the resource uh, and I thread that data structure through something that says uh, store in datomic and I thread it through something that says time aware and, uh, and then I wrap it with an HTTP adapter and now I can say now I can pass a header that says as of. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm, I'm using this to create a content management system for one of my clients and there's a page resource, and you can say, you know, page uh, holiday specials as of November of last year is 404. As of December 15th of last year, you get back one layout. As of January 15th, it's 404. <laughs> and as of December this year, you get a different layout. So by making everything time aware, almost for free, I can get something like a preview capability. You know, what, what's the site going to look like? a week from Monday, because the resources themselves are time-aware. Um, and I was able to add that as just a, a wrapper by injecting some interceptors into the chains. Hmm. Now, I will say, um, I, I've shown this to a few people inside Relevance, and there's some skepticism that the, um, the generic approach breaks down at some point when you start having to apply uh, extensive logic within the resources. 
I'm going to try to address that by keeping the resources so small that there's no such thing as extensive logic. That logic comes from the uh, interaction or, or collaboration among very small things. We'll see how far I can go with that. Hmm. So uh, th uh, is this out in the open? I mean, you're talking about it, so I assume it is. Well, it's it's not quite out in the open yet. I, I'm still regarding it as proof of concept. And, uh, you know, they say you should be slightly embarrassed by your first release. Mm -hmm. I would be massively embarrassed to release this at this point. Okay. So sometime soon, I'm hoping to uh, to get it out there. All right, cool. Well, uh, we'll certainly announce it uh, in various places when it is. Um, that's awesome. Um, yeah, well, that's cool. I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're... I'm like you, right? Like I, the, the pedestal stuff, the server side, I looked at it and I said, yes, I can see why I'd want that. I haven't taken the time yet to build anything with it. And the, the client side, uh, I think is, is even more exciting and I am even less familiar with. So, uh, I'm, I'm kind of right where you are, um, in the sense of wanting to, to ramp up on that. Yeah. I haven't done enough front end development and that's, that's something I aim to remedy very soon now. Cool. Uh, it's really exciting stuff, and there's there's a lot there, but like I just need to understand the basics well enough to get into it. Right. Well, cool. That sounds really interesting. I'm looking forward to uh, to seeing more about that. Um, so it's Friday, and we both have uh, it's you know Fridays are awesome. It is a wonderful benefit of working at Relevance, but there is a certain sense in which you get to Friday and you're like, okay. I've got 8 million things I want to do, and so I don't want to keep you too much longer. <laughs> but uh, before we do wrap up, I want to make sure I, I give you the chance to talk about anything else that we didn't get to yet that uh, you think people should know, should know about. So I guess the, the other kind of big aspect of what I'm doing these days is uh, helping with some conferences. So I've been part of the program committee for the Velocity Conference, which is coming up later this month. Uh, Velocity is uh, all about uh, web operations. So... Combine uh, resilience and robustness, scalability, uh, infrastructure, and web performance. And those topics are all at Velocity. So I'm really looking forward to that. I'll, I'll be there. Uh, it happens later on this month. And, okay, so late in June 2013. Okay. Yes, thank you. I'm not sure. Well, Assuming that the podcast gets out before then, if uh, it doesn't, Velocity was a fantastic conference and you definitely should have been there. Yeah, I will have heard that it was great. <laughs> Okay, cool. Anything I else? I don't think we have enough uh, verb forms to have, to really handle time travel. Yeah, we maybe the if we spoke whatever language the time lords speak, we would be uh, able to do that. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right, cool. Is there anything? Any, you said conferences. Is there is there another one? Uh, the other one that I've been helping with is the Go To conference uh, in Aarhus, Denmark, uh, which I've been attending for several years and and enjoying. It's one of my favorite conferences every year. Uh, that's in Denmark in October. All right. Anything else? That's about it. Cool. Well, then I have one more question for you, which is what music should we play on the way out here? You know, I, I was totally prepared with the intro music and I didn't give enough thought to the outro. You're, you're not the first person that that has happened to. <laughs> Let's go with the uh, fourth movement of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Symphony. Very good. All right. Keeping it classy, which is very appropriate. Again, Mike is a classy guy. Um, so, Mike, thanks a ton for coming on the show. This was a fascinating conversation. Um, you know, even if you weren't thinking about writing a book about one of these things, I would have loved to. I, I I would have enjoyed the conversation about all these topics. So that was awesome. And I know, like, you know, we just took your most recent blog post. Um, we could have taken any one of the others that you've written, um, or any of the ones that you are. I'm sure you have queued up in your head and had a, an equally fascinating conversation. I'm sure. So uh, thanks a oh, ton thanks. for coming on. 
Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Good. Oh, well, we'll have you back for sure. All uh, right. Great. So, uh, so I guess we'll wrap it up there. I will say uh, thanks again to Mike and thanks everyone to listening. This has been Think Relevance, the podcast. Thank mm-hmm. you.